You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we'll be joined by Mary Beth Medic, who's a registered nurse, a member of the faculty at the El Paso Community College, and also an oncology nurse and a hospice nurse. Mary Beth, thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking. So you've had a career or in the middle of a career as an oncology nurse, a hospice nurse. You've done hands-on nursing. You're a faculty member now. And and let's just start with the basic question. What is the role of compassion in medicine? Oh, compassion in medicine, I think, basically is caring. Caring about what we do, caring about the patients that we care for, and caring about their families. And is this something that nursing students or nurses, doctors, uh, aides come to their profession with, or is it a teachable art? I think there's something inside each person that signs up to be a physician or signs up to be a nurse, that there's something in them, a drive in them to help others, to teach caring. Yeah, I think you can teach it, but I think there still has to be something internal that makes you want to care for others. I think also mature clinicians can serve as role models that hopefully others can emulate and and learn from. But I agree with you. I think the basic desire to care and to be of help is probably something that people come to their mature, you know, work and career with. So with that in mind, what does compassion fatigue look like and what is it? Compassion fatigue was actually defined by a Dr. Figley back in the early 2000s. And he called it psychic exhaustion, just an overwhelming exhaustion from caring for others, from constantly being exposed to their trauma and to what they're going through with their disease. Are medical caregivers who are very compassionate more susceptible to that, or who's at risk? Well, actually, anyone's at risk that takes care of patients that are going through traumatic events, and obviously cancer is definitely one of those. But I think the person that has their own personal goals to be the perfect physician or to be the perfect nurse is probably higher at risk than the average person. I mean, we all go in to do a good job, but there's some of us, and we've seen them, that have a a different kind of drive, and they want to be the best, and they want to do the best for their patients and families. So it's interesting. It's not necessarily the amount of compassion one is sharing every day at the bedside. Some of it is more the drive. Yeah, I want to make sure I understand the drive to be the best, the drive to be the most compassionate, or the drive to be the best physician, the best nurse. Say a little more, if you would. The drive to do the best for the patient, to have the outcome for the patient be a good outcome. I think that's the drive. It's not so much a personal drive to be a good nurse. It's more of a personal drive to do the best for the patient. Yeah. And I think and that's both physician and nursing. Sure. And it's a tough field that we're in because in many ways we're not in charge. 
and we're, you know, taking care of patients with really very, very serious and life-threatening illnesses. Life-threatening illnesses and a lot of extenuating circumstances that come in, financial, family, a lot of different circumstances that contribute to their disease. Can you think of an example of a caregiver, a nurse or doctor, where you've seen it exhibited as they've gone through it? Actually, I can speak for myself. When I first went into oncology, my first year was really good. Mm-hmm. and But my second year became a little bit more challenging. We were taking care of several patients that were in their 20s with leukemias and lymphomas and some really life-threatening illnesses. And in a period of about four months, we lost them all. Wow. Um, and I started thinking, why am I here to do this? I love what I do, but I'm not making a difference. They're dying. And I actually left oncology. I kind of recognized it in myself that if I couldn't be positive in the fight to win, to beat mm-hmm. the cancer with the patient, then I couldn't, if I couldn't partner with them, then I shouldn't be there. I went to home health for a little mm-hmm. while. And it was funny because I was the only one on the home health care team that knew how to do a port cath Right. Yeah. So I got assigned to all the cancer patients at home okay. that had port cath Right. And I began to see that people do live and people mm-hmm. do survive. It's just in the acute care setting, we don't always see that. And somewhere during that year of growth, I also realized that there's an important part of helping a patient no matter what the outcome is. The outcome's death, and we help them have a good death. Mm-hmm. And at that point, our home health closed, and I decided oh. to go back to oncology. When you went back to oncology, how was the experience different the second time around? I was more accepting of the fact that we're not always going to win, we're not in charge, and I was more able to accept that and accept that I still had a very important role. I had a role with a patient and a family that were going through a a crisis, and they needed that support. I want to share, as I I think I've done on an earlier podcast, my wife Joan had leukemia 20 years ago. Unfortunately, it's okay. But as I look back now on that, that time, which was very, very difficult for Joan, for our children, for for myself as well. Who do I remember? I remember the nurses. I remember Flo, who uh, had been an oncology nurse for 20 years and was exactly the right person to be at the bedside with Joan going through that. So to you and to sort of the army of, of doctors and nurses and caregivers who are taking care of patients, especially with leukemia and lymphoma, as a family member, just a very big thank you. And also, and a thank you to you for sharing that story. You know, we also use the term burnout. What is the difference between compassion fatigue and burnout? Well, what do they look like? Well, if you look at them just to look at them, they look very much the same. But I think burnout is more of a frustration with a lot of different things. It may be the institution. It may be a lot of different variables that go into it. Whereas compassion fatigue, I think, is more of an exhaustion trying to do the best you can and never feeling that you quite have the time or the energy to meet the patient's needs. They can look very much the same. 
you and I were talking a little bit about this topic, and in one case, there's the nurse who wants to go into the room and wants to be doing the best they can, and then on the other hand, you've got the nurse who's back in the, uh, and this goes for physicians as well, who's back in the nursing station. How would you recognize them as being different? What are the behaviors? The behaviors are the nurse that's suffering from compassion fatigue is running all over the place, yeah. trying to, to put it all together, and is frustrated because she can't, she or he can't mm-hmm. get to that point. Whereas the nurse that is suffering from burnout is kind of more laid back. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, whatever happens, happens. I can't do anything about it anyway. Mm-hmm. And they get to a point that they end up leaving. You know, they end up leaving and oftentimes leaving the profession. Mm-hmm. One of my mm-hmm. dearest friends left the profession after doing oncology for just two years. She went into mm-hmm. real estate. She just was burned wow. out. She she just didn't go into it. Others have done kind of what I did, you know, mm-hmm. took a little mm-hmm. break from it, regrouped, and tried to figure out what it was that was bothering them. So they've got things in common, but they're also different from each other as well. Right. But they will cause some of the same problems. They will cause the short temper at work, sometimes the lack of communication, what are some of the side effects? So the primary effect of, or one effect, is on the individual, the sense of fatigue, of maybe feeling hopeless, maybe feeling helpless. How does that play out for their patient, but also for their coworkers and for their own family and for the workplace when a medical caregiver has compassion fatigue? What are the side effects? Well, the side effects in a personal kind of way can be Marriages that fail or non-involvement with their children, they just don't have the desire or the energy when they get home, Mm -hmm. tired. For the patients, I think that most of the patients don't realize it, except the nurse just isn't that caring. (laughs) Unless they have a nurse that's very caring, they don't know how to compare it. But there's liability out there. There's been an increase in lawsuits in both communication and assessment skills. And if you think about it, the nurse is sitting at the nurse's station or the nurse is running around frazzled trying to get everything done, there Mm -hmm. isn't good communication. So that results in some problems for um, both the facility as well as possibly for the nurse as far as liability goes. With that in mind, you know, talking about sort of our environment that we're working in, I think in our career there's been a big change from obviously from paper charts to electronic medical records. How have some of those aspects of the medical environment changed the life experience of medical caregivers, nurses, and doctors, and either increased or decreased the risk of compassion fatigue? Well, I think that having put things on the computer has set up a barrier between Mm -hmm. the patient and the caregiver, be it physician or be it nurse. Mm -hmm. My own personal opinion is that the technology hasn't really decreased our workload. Mm -hmm. In some aspects, I think it has. I think it's decreased the risk of medication errors because you took you take it out the human part of it. You have the computer part. So that part is good. But when an assessment takes you 40 minutes on the computer to do mm-hmm. and your documentation and there's multiple forms, I think it's actually increased our workload. But it's kept the nurse away from the bedside. And I'm sure yeah. it's kept the physician away from the bedside as well. There was a scary study published a number of years ago, looked at how many minutes a day medical students or residents, I think this was, actually spent at the bedside. 
and it turned out it was about 8% of their day. And the rest was spent at teaching sessions and, and meetings, and but a lot of time just at the computer. And have you seen that as well in nursing? Oh, yeah, for sure. I yeah. think the number is probably a little bit more even. I don't think it's as low as 8%, but I would say in the last years that I worked at the bedside, it was less than 25% with the patients. Yeah, it is a big change in our careers and not necessarily moving in the right direction. So in a medical workplace, whether it be at the hospital or in an outpatient setting, what are some things that the workplace can do? And then also, what can we do to prevent compassion fatigue? In the workplace environment, I think that some hospitals in some of the bigger cities have actually tried it successfully. We actually have that here. Self-scheduling has helped as long as everybody's willing to work weekends and holidays. Preceptorship programs for some of the newer nurses to really help them get into, be able to function more as a compassionate nurse. Well and sick daycares for children and recently for the elderly as well. Mm -hmm. Time off for family needs, adequate staffing, which I think is going to be a problem for a very long time. Um, You know, both for nurses and physicians. I know in our part of the the country, we have terrible shortage of physicians, especially Mm -hmm. neurologists and some of those. Shared governess programs whereby the nurses have buy-in in different aspects of the job. So those are just a few ideas that you know, companies can start to facilitate. Personally, people have to recognize that we have limits. Mm -hmm. We can't do it all, and we can't do it all in one day. And then we have to look for things outside our work environment. Friendships that we develop should really be with people outside the healthcare profession. A lot of times we go out with our friends that we work with, and then it's just a commiseration session where we're all complaining about work, and that's not healthy. We have to look at other things. We have to find our spiritual side or whatever it is that makes us who we are as a person. You know, we started out talking about what is compassion and what role it plays. Spirituality and compassion, I think, have a very strong interaction between them. So let me ask you, spirituality in caregiving, is that okay? Is it good? What role does spirituality have? I think that spirituality has a very significant role. We are all made as spiritual beings. Mm -hmm. So we need to find what connects for each person. And it isn't necessarily a formalized religion. It's a belief. It's a belief in healthcare, what healthcare is, what pain is to me what life means to me, what death means. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things are part of being caring and compassionate with the patient and the family to find that out. But before you can do that with them, you have to do it with yourself. You have to know where you stand on all that. You know, you were sharing, in a sense, your own journey of starting in oncology, moving out of oncology, and then coming back. But it's a reminder that in the same way we watch our own Uh, let's say our children develop from very little going, you know, all the different stages that we as caregivers also can have different stages of our career and of our own uh, maturity as um, professionals. And that's one of the beauties of medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we start out as novices where we have to really depend on the people around us. And then we grow to competent and then to expert. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a nice feeling. Let me ask you some about families as caregivers. We've talked about medical caregivers, medical professionals, but do you see the same kind of issue of compassion fatigue in family caregivers? You do. Family caregivers are, they're amazing. Some of the things that they can learn to do, they are amazing. But they also become very isolated while they're taking care of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we know, it's 24-7 care, and they become isolated. They can have the same kinds of feelings of compassion fatigue. They just get so super exhausted that they stop caring for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's when usually another family member or somebody really needs to intervene to help them out. When you've done hospice work and when you're teaching nursing students about that, what can we, what can nurses, doctors do to help family caregivers who are experiencing that same compassion fatigue we've been talking about? We need to tell them that they need to try and look at their resources. When I used to go and see the families, the patients, I would always spend my first maybe 20, 30 minutes with the patient, but then I would spend another 20, 30 minutes with the family. How are mm-hmm. you doing? How are you coping? Mm-hmm. Are you eating? Are you yeah. sleeping? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, first it showed them I cared about them, which I did, mm-hmm. because if they're not healthy and able to care, then they're not going to take care of the patient I'm responsible for. And so it was important to tell them to use their resources. If people from church have offered to help, take them up on it. Mm -hmm, You know, get mm -hmm. out of the house for a couple hours and go see a movie. And, yeah, they they need to have that. Fortunately, with the volunteer program through hospice, we were able to provide some volunteers to help with that. But they need to take advantage of their family members and people that have offered to help and not feel that it's a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. Good point. So with the holiday seasons in mind, what are some of the special challenges that medical caregivers or family caregivers uh, experience, Mary Beth? I think during the holidays, it's very challenging because a lot of the healthcare professionals aren't with their own families. They're in the hospital caring for others. And I think they have to make the most of it where they're at and realize that also the patients aren't with the family the way they would like to be either. I know on our oncology unit, we had big parties sometimes. Mm-hmm. We stuck mm-hmm. in mariachis, and we had a party <laughs> for some of our patients that were healthy enough to participate in that. And mm-hmm. it's kind of where the staff have to make their own Christmas, decorate, mm-hmm. um, have special treats to come in. Uh, potlucks, Mm -hmm. Uh, we did a lot of that. Usually the hospital provides a meal, but most of us did potlucks rather than the hospital meal. But we Mm -hmm. tried to include our families and our patients, especially the ones that have been there for a long time, leukemics in particular, because they are usually in the hospital for a month Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. when they get their first treatment. So try to make it special for them, decorate their rooms. You can put some candy canes or something on their door. Stuff for the staff to do to make it fun so that they're actually celebrating the holidays. Most units, uh, most departments Mm -hmm. will try to give each staff member a part of each holiday. So, you know, uh, one year we split the shifts. So the 12-hour shifts, each of us did six. We worked more holidays, but we only Mm -hmm. did six hours. Yeah, so so you had time 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 to pay attention to all the other things you were talking about. Uh, yeah. Family and spirituality and 
and, and joyfulness too. Yes, and that was effective except that it cost the hospital a lot because that changes shift period. But mm-hmm. they kind of went with it. They had better satisfaction and they had no sick calls. Right, all sounds good. So I want to thank Mary Beth Medic, who's a registered nurse and a faculty member at the El Paso Community College. Mary Beth, thanks for being with us. Thank you. For our listeners, for a listing of continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, please visit us at www.lls.org forward slash CE. And for questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about diseases, specifically about blood cancers, treatment, financial, and other support resources. And this is Dr. Ken Miller, and I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.